to our second guest this evening, or our second guests, uh, settle down, ladies, moving the handbags there. To our second guests, uh, we're going. Uh, we're doing something we've never done before at the salon. We're going bilingual which is very exciting. Um, Valeria Luiselli's debut novel, Faces in the Crowd, um, has just been published by Granta. Reviewing it, The Guardian said, this signals the appearance of an exciting female voice to join a new wave of Latino writers. Should that, should that be Latina or no? Yeah, mm, take note, Guardian. Anyway, the novel features two narrators, one dead, one alive, one male, one female, um, but both in search of some kind of narrative order. And I have to say, that's what I was looking for. And then I realized I wasn't going to find it, and I just surrendered, and I let it wash over me. And I reread it, and I was as confused and thrilled as I was the first time I read it. It's not for lovers of neat and tidy endings. Very, very good. So Valeria is going to read in Spanish, and our translator, Christina McSweeney, is going to read in English, and we're all going to feel very clever. Please welcome them. Hi, yes. Latino is a category invented by Americans. And I don't, I don't, I don't fit in there. I, in America, I am called alien non-resident. <laughs> so, <laughs> so no, I'm not yet a Latino. I don't know if I'll be one. So yes, I'm, go I'm going to to read in Spanish, but only for about three or four minutes, uh, because I, I I want people to understand. Um, and uh, I think Damien said he he will do a reading comprehension uh, quiz after I read. It's a very sh short um, piece. So. Well, um, this is a novel written in two voices. There's a woman narrator uh, and also a male narrator. Um, Christina obviously will do the male narrator. Obviously, uh, yeah, <laughs> I can see that one. <laughs> so, so I'm just going to read the very beginning of the novel um, so that you get an idea of, of, of how, I guess, the language flows in, in, um, in this first part, at least. Okay, I should say something more. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the hola, sí. Uh, no, no, no. But, well, actually, I'm curious. Does anybody speak Spanish? Sí, mi padre es conciliano. Okay, right. Two, three, pe three, three people, Dos. four people, five people. Okay, so then, then, then it's worth me, worthwhile for me to speak. <laughs> I have five Spanish listeners. Great. <laughs> uh, there, there's, uh, there's, well, the, there's many voices in this novel. The, the, the first voice that comes in, and it's a voice that comes in um, once and again, is, is, is that of a, a little boy who is about six years old. In, in Spanish, he's called the mediano, which means the, the middle-sized boy. Uh, so, this is how it starts. El mediano me despierta. ¿Sabes de dónde vienen los mosquitos, mamá? ¿De dónde? De la regadera. De día están en la regadera y de noche nos pican. Todo empezó en otra ciudad y en otra vida. Anterior a esta, de ahora, pero posterior a aquella. Por eso no puedo escribir esta historia como yo quisiera, como si todavía estuviera ahí y fuera solo esa otra persona. Me cuesta hablar de calles y de caras, como si aún las recorriera todos los días. No encuentro los tiempos verbales precisos. Era joven, tenía las, fuertes, las piernas fuertes y flacas. Hubiera querido empezar como termina I Move Bougies, de Hemingway. En esta ciudad, no, I, don't, I don't see very well as you can see me. En esta ciudad vivía sola, en un departamento casi vacío. Dormía poco, comía mal y sin variar mucho. Llevaba una vida sencilla, una rutina. Trabajaba como dictaminadora y traductora 
era una pequeña editorial que se dedicaba a rescatar perlas extranjeras que nadie compraba, porque al fin y al cabo estaban destinadas a una cultura insular donde la traducción se abomina por impura. Pero me gustaba mi trabajo y creo que durante un tiempo lo hice bien. Además, en editorial se podía fumar. De lunes a miércoles iba a la oficina. Los jueves y viernes estaban reservados para hacer investigación. Todos los lunes llegaba temprano y de buen ánimo, con un vaso de cartón lleno de café. Saludaba a Mini, la secretaria, y luego al chief editor, notas, que, era, que era el único editor, pero era el chief. Me llamaba, se llamaba White. Se sent, me sentaba en mi escritorio, me hacía un cigarro de tabaco rubio y trabajaba hasta bien entrada la noche. I think that was like four minutes, no, Damien? Did I stop? Hola. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I get the one in. Um, I'm going to move on now uh, to the second voice in the book, which is Gilberto Oin, a, a Mexican poet. And this takes place in New York in the 1950s. Garden people came out in solidarity with victims, not just any victim, but victims who successfully victimized themselves. My ex-wife, for example, When we got divorced, the criolla turned herself into a poet and a victim, the prophetess of divorced poet victims. She's just published a small book of deeply embittered prose poems, self-edited and bilingual. <laughs> With a so-called publishing house owned by her mentor, a French-American poet, who runs a writing workshop called SDML. Spiritual Daughters of Mina Loy. I don't think Mina Loy knows about them. My ex-wife has had the discourtesy to invite me to the launch, which is to be celebrated in her own apartment. I know I have to stay in her good books because if I don't, she'll never let me near the children. So I have the courtesy to go to New York to see her. The butler opens the door to me. I ask after the children, They're asleep. The apartment smells of a mixture of uptown perfumery, makeup, newly ironed clothes, and asparagus. The butler offers me a martini and, of course, a plate of boiled asparagus. My sight might betray me, but I'm still a hound dog when it comes to sniffing out a coven of witches gathered around their bitterness and a plate of expensive appetizers. I hang my jacket near the door among the handbags, the women's coats of every possible size and texture. I accept just the martini and make my way into the salon. I can't see the women very well, but from the noise and stench they give off, there must be 20, over 30 of them, sitting in concentric semicircles around my ex-wife and two other speakers three witches and Macbeth, but more vulgar and angrier with life. Standing facing the room, my balls suddenly shrink. Two peanuts. Perhaps they completely disappear. I stand there, sorry, I stand there behind the last row of seats as close as possible to the butler, terrified. My ex-wife is reading in her international Bogota accent. 
The poor woman has a very ugly voice. She moans the guttural consonants, elongates the open vowels, and squeaks the eyes like a badly tuned machine. She reads a poem about the practical utility of husbands. Her mouth always curved slightly downwards when she was reading aloud, also when she was reproaching me for my infinite list of faults. I imagine the bitter grimace, now further emphasized by the furrows and bags of aging skin. From time to time, bursts of hyena-like laughter break out from the invitees. Maybe, when the ceremony is over, they'll undress me, tie my hands and feet, lift my eyelids and fill my eyes with gobs of spit. They'll shit on me, years of intestinal resentment. She finishes reading the poem and the whole room reverberates with an ecstasy of applause. I reach out my hand to see if the butler is still beside me. There he is. I put my arm round his shoulder. Don't desert me, brother. Stay here, close by. I'll be here, sir. I'm not moving. She reads another poem and another. When she's finished the final one, presumptuously dedicated to Mina Loy, the women give her a standing ovation. The chairs scrape against the floor. Where can she have gotten so many chairs from? My ex-wife, a spider in the center of her web, looks at me from the opposite corner of the room. I feel her stare. I'm a tiny, flat, I'm a tiny fly trapped in her sticky universe. The butler removes my arm to attend to the lady's demands. I stay put, not knowing where to put my free hand. The one holding the martini is now trembling slightly. The international Bogotanian starts talking. Poetry, the breakdown of identity, life in exile, who knows how many other criollo cliches. She pauses to round off and says, I'm grateful for the presence of my ex-husband an unjustly obscure but highly capable poet. <laughs> the little heads turn in my direction. What does she mean by capable? <laughs> I get an urgent need to piss. Dozens of painted snouts smile. I can still make out white on black and know they're smiling because in the darkened room, the darkened room suddenly lights up like a star-toothy sky. The olive throbs in my glass. The organs in my suit throb. The persistent, sorry. The faces looking at me throb. Out there, the city throbs. The persistent pumping of the blood. The temperature of humiliation. Speech, speech. I wish for an instant death I am unable to bring about. Then I speak. I came because I was invited. Silence. I came because I've always been a dedicated feminist. Viva Mina Loy, viva. <laughs> Silence. In fact, Maria, I came because I wanted to ask you to lend me a few dollars to take the children to the fair next week. What? Silence. <laughs>
I love that at the beginning, blah, da, 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 Hemingway, da, 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 da <laughs> chief editor. Um, so, so, so Christina's your translator into, into English. How closely did you, did you work with her on, on that process? Very, very close. I mean, she, of course she did all the hard work. And for me it was, it was like paradise because I, I had the feeling that I was rewriting this novel, but of course she was, she was writing in English and I, and I, I felt very free to intervene, and she at the same time felt very free, I guess, to play with the language. You know, it's it's a novel that, in many ways, is also about translation. So, so, so there was a, a sort of complicity, I guess, between the characters and her and what I was doing. So it was it was definitely a process where we worked closely together. So it's kind of more interpretation than, than translation or collaboration, maybe. I it think. was a collaboration, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and the the novel in English changed in a way from the original in Spanish, oh. not, not substantially, but, but there's a lot of things where I decided to, to make a small change here and see how that sort of created a, a domino effect of changes, and, and it did, you know, and there, there were very interesting, very interesting results in that. Because the novel begins with a, f a female character who's living in Mexico City, and she's telling one story, um, and she starts to become obsessed by the ghost of an obscure-ish Harlem poet. Um, and, and thinks that she starts to see him in the way that you do when you're writing a book about something, you, you know, you start to see that thing everywhere. Um, and um, there's a tipping point in the middle where, where, the, where the ghost from her past comes to life and starts to think that, that she's the ghost and she becomes elided, doesn't she, um, from the narrative? Yes, I guess there's, there's many ways to see that, but yes. I mean, That's she, the way I saw it. She, I, I don't think it's a very valid interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yes. I mean... I, I would say that there, there aren't really two narrators in the novel, that it's just the, the, the woman narrator who, who somehow unfolds into the, the, the second narrator, the, the man, um, partly because she's, she's creating a fiction that is, that is in a way destroying her, her personal and her family life. Yeah, because her husband comes and reads the manuscript, doesn't he? And, and he says, I'm not like that. What are you talking about? The yeah. husband? And he thinks <laughs> I don't he's like the husband movie. of the book. So, so, well, not only that, and her t also her, her with her children. No, she's she she's sort of building the 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 novel with material that her little boy somehow provides by saying uh, or drawing certain things, and she she always takes what he's he says and transforms it into part of her f fiction no? or, her, or her fictional past, and she she sees how that process really incides in her, her how that construction of fiction is destroying her reality. So she decides to, to change, sort of transvestite herself. That's not a verb in English, right? Transvestite. Tranny. We can verb. do tranny. We can she yeah. <laughs> okay. into, a, into a male voice where she feels, in a way, safer and and through which she writes really about her own past. Oh, that's really interesting because I mean, for me, they're so they're so different. The voices that I mean, they're confusing in the middle intentionally, obviously, and then they become you know one or the other. So, um, when you say partway through the book, Spanish is a language which lends itself to fault finding. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I was actually going to read that piece in Spanish, but then I decided not because then it, I also spoke badly of English, <laughs> and then I thought, no, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> I grew I grew up in South Africa with British nuns, so my mm -hmm. I have this relationship between authority and the British accent, <laughs> which is deconstructing in these 15 minutes happily. <laughs> gin and None of the people here are nuns and nobody's going to hurt you. <laughs> no, no, no. I have seen no nuns today. At least. Gee, there might no, be a no. nun at the back. I don't know. 
I, and they're really bad luck, you know. I don't. They, I heard that. I mean, we, we say in Mexico, that if you see a nun, you have to you have to do something because it's really bad luck. So you have to like walk backwards three times or do something in order to, get, <laughs> to sort of get rid of the bad luck. It's like the movie Airplane. Know. Whenever there's a nun on an airplane, you know yeah, it's going to crash. Really bad luck. Yeah, it's really bad. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. So you spent how much of your time in South Africa? Um, about five years. I think I didn't answer a question. No, 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 no it's fine. I'm so you started off in Mexico, and then you and you went to South Africa straight away, or you kind of yeah. Well, my parents started off in well, they they right. I was born in Mexico, and um, and no, and then we went to the United States for a year, um, and then to Costa Rica for three years, and then to South Af no no to South Korea for four. And then to South Africa for about five. What do your parents do that you moved around so much? Um, well, different things. Uh, my father was a diplomat. Sometimes he was not in very good political terms with people, so we left for, for a long time. And then <laughs> just different, different things in <laughs> life sort of. So, going back to the question about Spanish being a fault finding language, mm. how is it? Well, if, if you're asking if it's true. Yeah. Mm, I mean, no, I think it's not really true. Okay. I mean, there's nothing like, quintessentially in Spanish that makes it a, a language that is easy, easy for fault finding. I, th I think I was more angry with the sort of critical literary tradition in Spanish and how and how there there is there wasn't a, a sort of discourse that was interesting as as a reader, and so I mean. I sort of quintessentialized it into Spanish, but no, I mean it's not. I'm not, I'm not saying any metaphysical truth about Spanish. Just okay. I want to ask you. Um, Tom mentioned about magical realism there, um, and I, I must admit I was nervy when this book was sent to me because I have issues with magical realism. I generally. have very big issues, and if you ask me if this is magical realism, uh, no, it's no. I don't think that it is. You can take it outside. No, no, no. <laughs> Love harsh talk. <laughs> I no, I. I trust me, I'm totally not going to go there, but we can, we can go outside if you want. But the thing about magic, I've been boxing quite a lot lately, but the thing about magical realism is that, it, you know, I think it's lazy, you know, this whole thing of, you know, he looked into the mirror, he turned into a snake, and, you know, and, and, um, and I just think, you know, he looked into a mirror and he saw something, what did he see, tell me what he saw. A you butterfly. Know? Yeah, yeah, a butterfly, oh my God, <laughs> yes, that turned into a tree. Yeah, but, but, but. Um, and again, going back to the, your review in The Guardian, it talked instead about a downbeat supernaturalism. Mm. And I wondered how you felt about that term I really instead. like that. Yeah. I thought it was really clever to say it like that. And it is, I mean, I would say it's a very, it's a very realis realist novel, uh, which speaks about the process of fiction, of, of the creation or the production of fiction. But it is absolute, can you say it again? It was very, it was a very nice word. Down downbeat supernaturalism. supernaturalism. It's not mine, yes. but... I could pretend <laughs> no, that it but is. No, but no, no. It yeah. was uh, the critic in the Guardian yeah, who said yeah. that. Yes, I, I, I think it's a very clever way to put it. I'm going to start saying that now about my. No, you should it's totally. Downbeat natural supernaturalism. Pronounce it. Downbeat supernaturalism. Yeah. No, because tell. So tell me what your beef is with the magical realism. Tell, tell, tell me what you know. You were saying that you don't like the magical, <laughs> the magical realism so much. So I mean, do. You, because there is this sense that we have that, you know, because you're from, from Latin America in some way that you kind of have to do that. You know, somebody has to turn it into a butterfly or it's not real. Yeah. I mean, yes. And, and that's what um, that's what I have sort of been encountering in, in the process of, of um, promoting the book uh, abroad. Uh, it's either it's either the magic realism or Bolaño. No? So oh. it's either you, 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 you this or you that. Um, I mean, I, I of course grew up as a as a reader as 
all Latin American readers uh, reading Garcia Marquez, for example, or uh, who, who, I mean, I, I wouldn't say, for example, that the rest of the Latin American boom is, is really magical realism. No? I mean, Rulfo is sometimes placed as magical realism. Uh, I don't think really he is. Uh, Cortázar is definitely not, Vargas Llosa is definitely not magical realism. No? But I, gr I grew up reading that generation, of mm. course. No? But, but I think, I mean, my, my generation is very much distant from, from that. No? And we, it's not, a, not, not only distant from that, but distant from the, from the f need to write foundational fictions about Latin American countries mm. and their dictatorships and their past. I think fiction has moved away for a long time from that. Uh, suddenly the world discovered Bolaño and they discovered that, that there was one person who wrote differently. Well, it happened to be a lot of people writing differently, really, for a long time. But, I mean, and that has been, in a way, very positive. I mean, Bolaño is a wonderful writer and it's, it has been very positive that he, he's been discovered elsewhere because all of a sudden uh, many readers are looking towards Latin America and realizing that magical realism ended in the 80s, I think. Yeah, with shoulder pads. But but the thing about Bolaño is that um, your your narrator um, is tasked by her publisher to find the next you know to find the next, the next one. It's this idea that you know we have to find you know, and I, I think that's really interesting that that y you know you reveal the very narrow ways in which publishers think about identity and how identity you know mm -hmm. shapes shapes what we write. Mm -hmm. um, so let me just ask you. So you're 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 doing your PhD at Columbia just now, which makes you incredibly young and beautiful. Um, so you're doing your PhD at Columbia just now. And, and you're female. And female. The other. No, no, I get that. <laughs> um, and your husband. Um, he's there. He's there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you're, so where are you based? Where, where, where are you sort of spending your time? Oh, we, well, we live in New York right now. And we live in Harlem with our daughter, which means we, we don't live really in New York. We live in the park. And in the playground <laughs> at home. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take some questions, Sylvia, and then Alex. <laughs> like a toaster, that hand went up. Okay. <laughs> oh, don't ask in Spanish, because then I can't translate. Okay. So the question, which I really don't understand, is you've been tweeting about one, three, two, and the movement. I don't know what it means, so tell me. Well, um, we were actually just talking about this because my husband wrote an article about this, which then Christina translated. So it's a family business thing now. Um, uh, well, the, the 132 is, is a movement in Mexico that began not very long ago, perhaps two or three weeks ago when one of the presidential candidates, candidates, the one that's possibly go probably going to win, uh, went, into, um, went to speak at a university and they booed him out of the university. Uh, and then someone uh, within the government said, no, 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 these probably weren't students, let's investigate them. Uh, they're probably, um, I don't know. Kind of radicals or Yeah, kind of radicals, so, which was exactly the sort of discourse uh, in the pre government, which ended up many times in catastrophes, uh, uh, in a lot of student repression in Mexico for ages. So, so the students came out and said, no, 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 no. It was us. We were the students. And there were no infiltrated anybody. And this is us. And it was 131 students showing their identity, saying, 
this is me, my name is this, and this is what I think. And so the 132 springs from there, it's sort of a symbolical number um, in which students are basically manifesting themselves. Uh, it's a little bit ambiguous as has been Occupy or, or the movement in Madrid. In this case, it's not so much about the financial system, etc., but about how information is manipulated in TV and radio and in the media in general, and in this specific case, uh, to support a candidate that we really don't want to go back into, who represents a party that we don't want back in power. And mm. So the students in Mexico have been taking the streets, and, and it's been very heartlifting. I mean, and after, I mean, Mexico, the only news that come from Mexico lately is narcos and killings. Eh? So, so turn your phone off. Find your phone. Turn it off. It's probably the pre-candidate who's <laughs> listening to me. That was repression <laughs> in action, people. Repression. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> there wasn't anything in the reading that was more sophisticated linguistically than the way you've been talking for the last. So that's that's a that's a really good question. Your English is amazing. Why why do you have a translator? Why why would I you mean, do that? It's amazing because of the British nuns in South Africa <laughs> who hit, hit me hit me <laughs> in the a lot of punishment in between. And no. <laughs> um, I mean, I speak English because I partly grew up in South Africa. Um, uh, but I certainly, I mean, there's many sides to that question. I certainly, uh, when, I re when I read Christina's translation of my novel, I knew that I, had w I, I sometimes write in English, but I would have never written something like that in English. There, there is, I, I am bilingual to an extent, and I, and I actually often write in English when I'm writing a book, uh, and I translate that back into Spanish, and sort of the English is part of my working process, and that's how I'm working a lot now in my new book. So, so would somebody have? So, you might have written parts of this in English. They then then put yeah. them into Spanish, and then they translate you back to English actually, again. Actually, yeah. Actually, the first, the first, the first um, wow. sort of piece that I worked on that was published in the New York Times, mm. um, which is still sort of part of my first book, which is sort of a, it's a book of personal essays. Mm. Um, that piece I originally wrote in English, and then I. Rewrote it in Spanish, and then it became part of the novel. And then Christina translated it into English. And I really like working in that process. I, I find a lot of um, incredible things in, in the back and forth into English and Spanish. And and, and now, in, uh, as I was saying in this new book, I, I I write a lot of my pieces in in English, and then write them again in Spanish. And then eventually, I'm, I'm, I'll give Christina my translation, just in Spanish, so what she can work. What's on the that. new book? Well, it's sort of bad luck to talk about it. It's like no, it's a non thing, no. <laughs> no, it's not bad luck to talk about it at all. Go on, a little bit. A little bit, just a little bit. Mm. I mean, it, it's I'm, I'm I'm sort of going back to my childhood in South Africa, and um, it's it speaks about the 1990s in South Africa, which were a very particularly important and vibrant time. 1994, when Mandela became president. But at the same time, I'm working very much in the limit of fiction and non-fiction. I don't want to write a biography or an autobiography. I cannot. Every time I start writing something that I intend to be true, I end up 
fictionalizing or just lying about it. So <laughs> I, Levison and Choir. So, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't intend to write a biography. I'm going to write fiction about it. And at the same time, I'm working with these very crazy manuscripts from the Middle Ages. Uh, one of them is written by this deaf nun um, whom I really, really enjoy reading. So I, I'm, I'm working with, with that material. I always work with other books a lot. And I, I mean, I really integrate my reading process into my writing. So I'm working with fascinating me medieval manuscripts, and I'm trying to go back to my childhood you know, and follow up with them. Amazing, amazing. I'll take one more question. Yeah. Yeah. What what uh, what's your PhD on, and and how much does your PhD, the kind of what you're writing there, intersect with your book, and how late is your PhD? How late? I'm teasing. <laughs> They're always really late. Yeah. Late. <laughs> um, well, it's it's called comparative literature, but in my in my university in particular, that doesn't mean anything. Um, so I'm working mostly in architecture and. Literature. <laughs> really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> so and it intersects. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably not a very serious academic. I would like to be more. I mean, I'm serious in my reading. I'm just probably not cut out to be uh, just a very you know, like, uh, serious academic, no? so I'll be especially because I, I end up writing fiction with the things that I read. And I, if I start reading architecture, I start writing a short story that involves architecture. And so, so yes, it's very, it's, I mean, I think my, my work in fiction is very much informed by what I read in just as in my academic work. You know? Okay, so I'm going to say thank you to Valeria, to Christina. We'll be back in 15 minutes with Andrew Miller. Thank you.